Around the world and across the ages, you're listening to the April 2010 edition of The Cavern Today, a missed online Ulu Live fan presentation. You can listen to our podcast, past and present, on iTunes or via our website, thecaverntoday.com, where we also have an RSS feed for your convenience. We invite you to give us feedback via our forums or the comments link under every podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Now, on to this month's podcast. This month, we have a new format for you as TCT Talk will be carrying the podcast. We'll be taking a break from TCT Talk every so often to bring you music by Jeff Wise and a fantastic Moog Thought. Without further ado, let's get into TCT Talk, your roundtable chatterbox about the goings-on in the Cavern community. This month, we have with us Holly. Hey. Janathus. Hello. Jeff Wise. Hello there. Wing. What's up? And uh, me, of course me, Sherry. And this month we have a special treat for you. She's listed in the Uru Credits book. She is the author of Communities of Play, Emergent Cultures in Multiplayer Games and Virtual Worlds, published by MIT Press. She's worked behind the scenes with Siam. She's the ethnographer and resident doc on call for the Meeting Place neighborhood. This month, our special guest is the one and only Dr. Celia Pierce, but you may know her better as Artemisia. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Hi, Doc. I'm glad you're here. Hi. Um, okay, um, so let's talk about the Capcom meter real, real, real fast. Uh, Rawa has posted on the forums about how uh, we have the membership numbers, how many people are logging in. What else is on there? Uh, level definitions, uh, telling you that levels 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1. Uh, one being the, the terrible one where donations are less than the Mulligan expenses and the reserve fund is empty. This would be a bad thing. I think it's been holding steady at four for the past few months. That's Good, awesome, which is That's great. Awesome. And I'm glad that he like he l- listed them correctly because most people in movies even talks about how most movies get it wrong with the DEFCOM numbers being reversed, whereas they think that DEFCOM five is the worst thing that could happen, but it's actually the other way around. Yeah. Where DEFCOM one is the really bad thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he it's uh you know, if if you guys have not seen the Capcom meter, it is a, a reference to the movie War Games, believe it or not. I think he mentions that several times in the thread, doesn't he? Strange game. Uh, well, it's uh the movie with uh who's in that? Ali Sheedy and Matthew uh, Broderick. Matthew Broderick. Man, that's an old movie. Hard yes, to make a sequel. Yeah, they did. It was terrible. He was yeah. like four or something when he made that. <laughs> yeah, he was. Um, okay, uh, so what else do we have on the list? So we covered the Capcom meter. Do we have anything else we want to say on that? Uh, the Cavern Today now has a shoutcast. Woot! All right, so yeah. if you uh, oh, yeah. go to, to uh, shoutcast.com and do a search for the Cavern Today, you'll find our feed. Uh, the the host of the, the shoutcast is Moose, and he has a dynamic IP, so every so often it's going to change, so you can't really download the play the, that .pls file and keep referring back to it. You have to, every once in a while, refresh at the shoutcast site. And it is a work in progress, so be easy on him. If something grows wrong, please let him know. The guy, he's got, he's kind of, he's got fragile feelings. 
he really does. But it's uh, <clears throat> it's going to be all the music that we use that we use and, and are allowed to use through the cavern today, which includes the uh, music by LCC, uh, Jeff Wise. Um, I don't know that uh, some a couple of pieces by Moog, one of which is still a work in progress, and, uh, yeah. and we're intermittently uh, throwing in music from Mist Online. So give it a get a check it out at uh, shoutcast.com. Look up the cavern today. Right on, yeah. man. And now we have a piece from Jeff. Over to you. Hi, Jeff Wise here from the Cavern Today to introduce my newest composition. It was something I'd hoped to have ready for the last podcast, since it was more pertinent then. But all that aside, I hope you enjoy Welcome Home Uru.
let's talk about griefing in Uru. Oh, you missed you missed it, Sherry. Oh. You weren't with us. We we were having a fun day when we brought in the new folks. We were having this little Skype chat. Everyone was involved. We tried getting you, but you know you were online but unavailable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we was like, hey, we've got enough people to do the Garden Age. Let's do the Garden Age. And you yeah. would be proud of us how quickly we got it done. We, we got it <laughs> there. The one day I wasn't there. Yeah. So we decided, hey, we need to do the other Garden Age. Since we're all here, might as well do it. And somebody said, hey, there's a Garden Age in the, the Guild of Greeters. Let's go scoot over there. And so we did. And I don't know if we, if we uh, slighted anybody because we kind of popped in and just made a beeline for the Garden Age. We didn't even say hi. You know yeah, how like, all like, hey, look, it's Moog. Yeah, we just, like, but you don't see them. that unless you're because unless they privately when you don't cheeky. greet the Guild of Greeters. <laughs> well, the, oh god. Well, I don't want to go there, the, but the but move beyond it. Yeah. Right. Well, the thing is, if people don't private you, like they don't send you a private message, your key doesn't pop up when they talk. Mm-hmm. So we didn't even notice it until we were in the other age and needed to talk to each other. So. Somebody popped over, who shall remain nameless, and started running around and randomly touching claws, the door, and everything, pretty much to screw us up. I can't believe somebody would take the time to do that. I, and I never understand griefing in any shape or form. Well, from reading the private section of our forums, it made Moog use the word yutz. What a yutz! I was like, oi, okay. But you, you know, but it was a, it was a spot of comedy because we were kind of sitting there like, get away from me! Oh my God, stop touching that! And like, we're we're all on the call <laughs> yelling at this person like. Yeah. I have a question for you guys. Oh, when I was in Uber the last several times, I never once had an experience of griefing. And a couple of weeks ago in the Guild of Breeders, uh, no, it was in the TMP hit actually, somebody came in and was running around and annoying us. And I thought, God, that's really weird. I've never seen that before. Are you noticing more griefing in the new version? That's um, interesting. A little bit, actually. Uh, I had never seen griefing before either, even though people have uh, talked about it uh, being around. And it seems like some of the other TCT staffers actually have experienced griefing in the past in past versions, but I had never seen it until you know just recently. It's like, wow, griefers in Uru. I these people yeah, I have no time <laughs> experience much because uh, by the time I got Complete Chronicles, the original uh, Mist Online was already down. But from what I hear, and you know, it's just sort of speculation on my point. But I think it might be because now it's free, so you can just grab it and go, go and do whatever instead of actually having to want it to get it. Yeah, that's oh. kind of my. That's kind of what I was thinking is maybe because it's free, it, it's a lot easier for riffraff to get in. Mm. Well, um, like demolish shard was invite only, so that might have helped. Well, I mean, come on, think about it, guys. I mean, Uru has always been a very sheltered community, and I mean sheltered in a very good way. We have always kind of been our own little island, so to speak. And um, Uh what I noticed is that, you know, a lot of us have had to go to different online worlds with the opening, closing, opening, closing action that's been happening. And uh, for me, at least, you know, when you are exposed to, you know, when you've been a very hardcore Uruite, I mean, Uru Live was my first online world. We all know this. And when I went beyond that, you know, when I f- encountered my first griefer in there.com, I sat back going, what is this? Why are these people doing this? Where is this maliciousness coming from? And I can't help but think that maybe that we've had some people bring back those bad habits. 
from uh, you know from other online worlds that they can think they can get away with it and uh, that it's acceptable, which we all know that it is definitely not. And it's, it's actually not um, pattern, to be but... to be perfectly you know we don't have resings anymore, and yeah. so we don't have as much of a recourse anymore. But the, strictly speaking, it is against the terms of service. Uh, but if you look at anything on the internet, I mean, comment sections on articles, uh, any, anywhere there's something where somebody can have a differing opinion, yeah. people seem to come out in droves just so they can spew nonsense. Somehow that's going hand in hand with the internet these days. It also well, seems seems to me like there's an age factor. I mean, um, in virtual worlds that I've been looking at where the age and gender is a little bit different, um, younger and more male, there tends to be a much higher incidence of griefing. And with Uru's demographic, which is pretty gender balanced and, and older in age, um, I think it's less common. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. Um, my first online uh, game was... Uh, Counter-Strike Source, actually. So I had sort of the inverse experience from uh, Sherry. So uh, I was used to griefing. I didn't even really notice it. But it was an extremely amazing breath of fresh air when I got to Uru for the first time. It was like, why is nobody making fun of anyone else? Why is everyone so helpful? Is there something going on? <laughs> is, should I be worried? That's yeah, so how I you don't get experience know. in Uru. You, you do nice things for each other. That's a... <laughs> yeah, Sherry, it was a you... new thing for me. Sherry, did you ever read the baby boomer study that I did? I have not gotten to yet. I, so I, I, mm-hmm. I did a I did a follow up study of my original Uru research um, with about almost 300 baby boomers, many of whom were Uru players, but they also came from other other game communities. And um, one of the top three uh, things when I said, "What was your favorite? What is your favorite activity?" Um, Helping other players was in the top three, along with exploring, which I thought was pretty interesting. Wow, that's awesome. Well, I mean, and, you know, uh, some of our first-time listeners, I mean, you know, we joke around here at TCT, but the whole point is is that, you know, the Uru community is not built on griefing. It is built on just what Doc just said. It's, it's helping people. It's exploring. It's about, you know, I mean, the, those of us, I mean, Moog talks a lot about story. And how the story is built around how being helpful and eschewing pride and all those nasty things that we see out in the everyday world that are these seven deadly sins almost. And, you know, Uru's not about that. I mean, if you expect to grief in cavern, you're going to get a really cold audience because you're going to get ignored really fast because people just don't have time for it. They, they want to have that uplifting experience. But, you know, that's just me, though. It might be because of uh, the emphasis on... Uh, issuing pride that Yisha puts on the journeys. Mm-hmm. And also, also because it's not a combat-based game, I think that people that go into games that are heavily combat-oriented will tend also to be more combative, let's say, and that might lend itself to some more um, griefing behaviors. Yeah, it's definitely not competitive. It's like, I did more puzzles than you. Yeah, that was my fear about it when it first came out. I don't want to, do, I don't want to play Uru Miss Deathmatch. <laughs> but uh, this is not missed mayhem. But uh, one one point before we move on. Um, yeah. When we were looking at uh, the missed online or live sustainability problem, we were on the forums mm-hmm. trying to talk about recruiting people, and then they were talking about the quality of people that were coming in. Mm-hmm. I the the point I wanted to make, I, I tried to make at the time, and I don't know if anyone really heard it, was that this is kind of the way it is. If you get bigger and more popular, you're going to have a wider diversity of things you're going to experience, which includes this kind of uh, player. This kind of a mixture, like, you know, I'm sure like in World of Warcraft, they have no problem banning players who are very disruptive. 
because they have this massive user base, you know, besides it. Whereas, like, with Mist Online or Alive, kind of every player kind of counted. You know, most games have no toss reinforcement, though. I mean, you know, they, you sign these pretty draconian contracts, but in actual fact, there's no moderation of griefing in WoW. I mean, you can just pretty much do whatever you want. And unless you do, you have to get reported, right? Because there's no one there to see you. Um, and most people don't bother because it's too time-consuming. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely go that one. But, you know, it's that reminds me of something. Morris, uh, we were talking backstage about some things in the hood. And um, it was really funny because Morris mentioned that it, the negativity had kind of spilled over into the MOUL forums. You know, you see a lot of people getting mm. negative. I, I saw this one post uh, from, a, you know, she's uh, fairly well known on the boards. And she was saying, you know, what what are we supposed to do now? We've we've run out of ages, you know, and she's feeling kind of gypped because they're not to use her created content yet. And she just had this tirade of negativity going on. And, you know, we, we all know, intrinsically, we all know there is no new content coming. They are not ready to push user created content yet. And, you know, they're really starting to get negative with that. And I can't help but think that it's the inf it, the influence from other online worlds that's doing this. Because, I mean, Blizz is constantly pushing updates. It's constantly new content. And people are really spoiled with that over in there. There was constantly new developer content coming out. I mean, in Second Life, constantly new content coming out. And Even now Valve's you get doing to it with TF2, yeah. Yeah, and so um, now you get into the stagnation. Go ahead, Holly. I'm sorry. Um, It's okay. It's just, as someone who's fairly new to the community, I have to say there is a sense of negativity and bitterness from a lot of the quote-unquote old bees. <laughs> and it's, it can be a little bit off-putting. I'm, I'm really sorry to say that, but that's just the way it seems sometimes. A lot of people have been extremely welcoming, extremely nice, but there's a few in every group, of course. <laughs> That's going to come with anything, I think. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's a, there's a lot of us who have been around a long time, and, and there are a lot of us who are very, you know, we've been burnt so many times. We've gone back, you know, been kicked out, gone back, been kicked out. You know, and all we wanted was our home world that was up and working. And yeah. it's very discouraging sometimes because what you're seeing is a lot of discouragement because, you know, we have stuck with this franchise through come hell and high water. I mean, over in there, it was amazing to see how many different, uh, you know, permutations of the different ages. I mean, I saw a 3D modeled quab, for goodness sake. I mean, they wanted to be home. And it is, you know, and it, and it hurts sometimes because there's not a lot to do in Cavern. They've finished their ages and we're waiting. And a lot of people have trouble waiting. And I mean, Tom Petty said it, the waiting's the hardest part. And it's, you know, and it's one of those things where they have to remember that, hey, this is in your hands. You've got to get up off of your keister and make something happen. But I mean, in the days of Until Uru, even Damala, I mean, there was nothing happening. I mean, as far as ages and additional content. I remember signing a petition uh, that had, I think it was somewhere over 80,000 signatures just to bring Uru Live back. Mm -hmm. And I think that was also during the uh, the Shard days with Damala. Okay, Doc, let's talk about your book, because I'm in your book. I love you. Uh, sorry. It's always great and a lot of fun when you get mentioned well, somewhere. Okay, but your book is uh, Communities of Play, Emergent Cultures in Multiplayer Games and Virtual Worlds. 
where did the inspiration come for that? Where does where does a book like this come from? Well, it started initially with um, I was very interested in the sorts of behaviors that were happening around multiplayer games that were not anticipated by designers. Um, my background is actually in game design. And what I had noticed was that virtually every massively multiplayer game and virtual world, you would have these kind of group behaviors. And the definition of emergence is essentially large scale behaviors that are primarily bottom up. They're not organized by any one element, but rather they happen over time through a bunch of smaller incremental actions. And I had sort of stumbled upon the phenomenon of intergame immigration and, um, I had originally wanted to study the Mafia in The Sims Online, and when I went into The Sims Online in order to talk to some people there who were part of the Mafia, what I discovered was that everybody was gone. <laughs> and um, this was shortly before The Sims Online actually closed or sort of reopened in its new form. And I had been hanging out a bit in there.com, and I had noticed someone wearing a Sims Online refugee t-shirt. And uh, I contacted people from the Sims Online refugee group, which I found through the search engine in uh, InsideThere.com. And they had weekly like support group meetings of people who had immigrated from the Sims Online. There were over 800 people in the group at this time, which is around spring of 2004. And when I told them I was interested in this intergame immigration phenomenon, they told me about the Uru community. And so that was kind of what turned me on to that as a specific case of intergame immigration. Oh, wow. That, that, that is a long road to get to us, isn't it? <laughs> well, we are well, kind of the poster child for uh, migration. Yeah, absolutely. We're up, no, we're actually, not. We're up, no, we're not. Well, actually, you know, I didn't know that at the time, of course, because we had only closed once at that point. <laughs> but, uh -huh. um, but... The other thing that was interesting to me was that, I mean, I, I like to study things that other people aren't studying. Um, you know, I'm pretty much the only academic researcher that did research in there.com, while pretty much all of my peers have been studying Second Life over the last three or four years. Of course. But, but Uru was kind of fascinating to me because it was a small community, but it was a very adamant one, a very devoted fan community. And so I was also interested in... Um, there were a number of other things that the Uru community had brought over to there with it, um, and specifically this, this notion that I term fictive ethnicity, which is that people identified as being from Uru, and they would talk about the homeland, Uru. And so there was a very, very strong affinity with Uru that really didn't exist among the Sims Online players that I met, to be honest. And so that was something that really fascinated me. Um, the only thing I've seen that equates with that are some of the fan cultures that have emerged around things like Star Trek and Star Wars. So, you know, you have people that um, identify with being Klingons and have Klingon weddings and things like that. Um, so this was another sort of manifestation that people really created this very strong emotional attachment to this virtual place that had been taken away from them. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, now... Um... I, because, I mean, I got to see a lot of you, you know, in your field station and, of course, your little area, which was built on Channelwood. And thank you, Talos. That was a beautiful rendition of Channelwood. Um, tell tell me a little bit. I, I'm, as we went to, uh, as uh, TCT1 went uh, live last month, 
we just, I mean, just not even days after we had posted it, their.com had shut down. Now with their.com and how Uruites migrated to there, now there's closed down, Uru's open. I mean, in your view, since you study this migration, I mean, what's your take on that? Well, the whole situation with Uru reopening and their closing, what is it, three weeks later, is just bizarre. I'm sorry, it's just, and the last night we were in there.com, someone made a comment about it, and I said, they said, well, it's a really interesting coincidence. I said, it's not a coincidence, it's a miracle. Um, and I think that there's a couple of interesting things that I observed in the last week of there after the announcement. One of them was that the Uru, the Uru, members who were in there.com were actually taking the whole thing in stride. You know, uh, I, I, there was one evening when June, I was with June and she was walking around and telling non Uruvarians, it's okay. We'll stay together. We'll find another place. We've been through this before and we survived. And I thought, you know, this group is so experienced at having this diaspora culture of moving around from place to place, being kicked out of Uru multiple times. And almost being kicked out of there twice. I mean, you know, there there were the two prior near closures. That there was a lot more of a, almost a acceptance and and sort of a sense of endurance. Like we've been through this. And I, I jokingly said it reminded me a little bit of you know people from the Jewish diaspora who were like, well, it's a, it's a real hassle that we have to move around, but it's just like, oi, we have to move again, you know. And there was just this sense of. Uh, I don't know how to explain it, kind of having been through the experience. And then the other thing that struck me was that there was a sense of supporting the other variants that, you know, having been through this and having survived it, people were like trying to support the people that for whom this was the first time to experience this. Well, Doc, how, how did uh, how did the Darians take it? I did not log in for it. I was, you, you know me, you know how very devout I am to Cavern and that, you know, I was very burnt out with there uh, for multiple reasons. I mean, how did the Darians take it? Were they like us the first time? I think everybody was in a state of shock, to be honest. And, you know, it was such short notice. And because the prior times that there had almost closed... People had been giving a forewarning and had also gotten together. I mean, people had rallied around there to try to prevent it from closing on the previous occasions. There was a, a much greater amount of transparency by the company, whereas in this mm -hmm. case, the statement was made, we're going to close in a week and that's it. There was no flexibility. There was no option for people to help um, keep it open, etc., so I think it sort of shocked people. I think they felt blindsided by not being given the opportunity to kind of recapitulate by supporting their everybody that I've talked to since then has said they would have gladly paid a subscription fee or additional money to keep the world open. But for whatever reason, um, Michael Wilson decided, the owner of McKenna, decided that he did not want to leave that door open for the community. And so people were pretty upset, actually. There's some really amazing videos on YouTube that people have been posting, um, you know, expressing how they felt about the Vera community. And, you know, the, the Uru community, interestingly enough, while initially rejected by the Vera community at large in 2004, when they first came in, I think there were about 350 to 400 Uruvians mm -hmm. who immigrated into Vera.com. 
um, by this time now, the Uru community is very, very had been very well established in Bear.com, was one of the major landholders of neighborhoods, had in fact helped instigate the whole neighborhood system, which allowed communities to own their own land. And every single member advisory board in the history of there, starting in 2004, had an Uru refugee on it. <laughs> that was me and Talos, uh, fall 2005. Yeah. That's right, baby. Uru pride. So yeah, Uru, blame them. So this, this immigrant community that was originally shunned and had to move around from place to place because it was taking up too much processing and causing lag, um, eventually became one of the most influential and important subcommunities within there.com. Um, so they also took that role kind of in the last week of being, oh, we, you know, we've been here a long time, we've been involved. But I think it's really sad. I mean, you know, people... The last night in particular, a couple, one person went off um, to be in the space that they had built. I think where the differences between Uru and there is that, you know, you guys were sort of discussing earlier how Uru is kind of fixed, this fixed moment in time now because there's no new content. The thing about there is that there was built by the time they closed um, almost entirely by players. If you would w walk around or drive around in there, you would see that, 99% of the things that you looked at were created by players. And so to me, the, the thing that I think is most painful for people is losing all the beautiful things that they made and they worked so hard to build and the money they spent in creating that world. So, for instance, you mentioned the channel would build that Talos did mm -hmm. for the University of there mm -hmm. um, as our Georgia Tech headquarters. Well, there's a number of those channel would builds around there.com. And, you know, they took a lot of time and effort and money to to assemble. So people really feel like their their creations have been taken away from them. And I think that's the biggest emotional impact. And then the avatars. Um, I know people have been really attached to the, the their avatars um, mm -hmm. in following some Uru immigrants around in Second Life who were from there. Um, they're really having a hard time adjusting to, mm -hmm. in particular, the avatars, what they look like, how they animate, um, the controls, and so on. So those are the two big, I think, things that people are really responding emotionally to at, at this point. You know, I forgot an uh, I forgot a new right that was on fall 2005, and that was Kitty. I have to mention Kitty and Kaylee, and mm -hmm. if I forgot anybody else, I am so sorry. Um, that those, those are the people who first come to mind from fall 2005, but I mean, June, Stung Thumbs, all those guys, I mean, we were mad addicts, but you know what I think is so funny about the Uru Avatar, uh, sorry, not Uru Avatar, but the, their Avatar, the, their Avatar in, in deference to the Uru Avatar and the one from Second Life is that the, the, their Avatar was very intuitive. When you talk to it, it nodded. You know, if you were ta if they you were talking to it, it would turn and face you, and it was such an intuitive. I mean, you sat with your legs crossed and your toe tapped. I mean, those were wonderful things about that Uber avatar, and it did not walk like it had a stick planted up its rear end. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're absolutely right, Sherry, and I think that I think that there there.com is probably one of the best designs ever in terms of avatar expressiveness, and in fact. Just a little inside scoop um, for the Varians and who are listening to the cavern today that Jeffrey Ventrella, who was the original designer of the avatar system in there, is, is in the process of actually writing a book about the design of these avatars and how they, you know, what he what his goals were in terms of 
maintaining better expression and social affordances. Oh, that's awesome. I actually got the ragdoll. He has a ragdoll app on his um, site. I don't know what the name of his website is. I think it's ventrilo.com, I think. But uh, you'd have to Google it. But you can actually download an app where it's a little ragdoll. And you pick him up and you can toss him around a little bit. And then he'll stand and he'll look at you. And if you get your uh, mouse pointer too close to him, he'll run off. You'll get skittish. But if you're really sweet to him, he'll come walking up. Very, very neat. I, I mean, I love that app. It's a lot of fun to play with. And I download it every once in a while just to just to play with it just a little bit. But then I live, leave it alone for a while. But, that, I mean, there was such a unique world in the fact that, you know, just as you said, Doc, it was, you know, you could build things, create things, and you were a part of the world. You were integrated into it by what you created. I mean, look at me in my Shroomy Safari Company shirt. I mean, we had so much Uru clothing, Uru buggies. I mean, Miyandi alone. I mean, that man created such an Uru culture just with everything he made. I mean, the boat on the cover of your book. Mayandi all the way and it was so base and you could feel the cavern you know the cavern influence so strongly in each piece he made so I'm, I'm well, gonna a lot miss of the, the, you'll be, even though you were not physically there Sherry mm-hmm. <laughs> you were yes. very present because most of the Uruvians that I was with the closing night were wearing your clothes <laughs> so. I saw some of the pictures from the TMP robes and we those robes I tell you what those were a labor of love. I, I loved creating those, and they were really beautiful. And I, I, I couldn't have topped that, Doc. I mean, I went through maybe 20, 30 different versions of a new set of robes for the TMP, but nothing. And people called them pajamas. <laughs> they said they look like pajamas. And I was like, well, love you too. Didn't see you put in the time. But, <laughs> you know, at the same time, it was very much, you know, it, those were just a labor of love. And I mean, I worked so hard on those and I'm so glad to see that people were wearing them the final night. I mean, yeah. And, but so um, you were there in spirit. <laughs> good. I'm, sure, I'm glad. Well, hey, you know what? Hey, I brought haute couture to that world. While everybody was designing for, you know, everyday stuff, I was bringing in clothes you only saw on a runaway. So, uh, and Doc and I have talked at length about this <laughs> multiple times. So anyway. back to kind of your your question, too, about the immigration. Yes. is one thing that's that's happening that's kind of interesting is now you have this kind of reverse immigration where originally when the first, you know, when Uru reopened in various forms with uh, Until Uru and Mala and mm-hmm. GameTap, um, the variants pretty much stayed put and just added Uru into their repertoire. Very few people vacated there.com and Second Life to come back to Uru. But um, what's happening now is you're getting this reverse immigration. So for instance, I don't know if you guys are aware, but Stunk Thumbs has actually started uh, a University of Their Hood inside Uru. <laughs> um, the University of There being a large campus that Sherry was very heavily active in, um, where people could take classes in various things, design, etc. Mm-hmm. And um, so he wants to create that same kind of culture within Uru through this University of Bearhood. Um, I think so, I saw that in the Nexus ones. Yeah, they just added it recently, and um, it's an attempt to take all the work that they did, which was pretty extensive. And I did another study of the University of Bear, which was, of course, run m- mostly by Uru people. Um, and, uh, you know, they put a lot of effort into that, and I think they want to continue that in some other way. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole thing, I mean, Doc, 
I mean, you'll go this with me. I mean, we worked really hard at the university there to create a really great academic environment. And what was so funny to me is how Varians rejected it because it was based, is that most of us who ran it were from Cavern. And you, I saw a lot of resistance to taking the classes, to going to the campus, because it was Uru Run. And uh, I just, I, I find that incredibly I ironic. That, I think that was true in the beginning, Sherry. But when, mm -hmm. by the time that I did my study, which was right after you, I guess, retired, um, um, right. by that time, I think that had pretty much gone away. Most, Actually, quite a bit of the instructors were not Uru players. And I think players realized also the value of having a place where they could learn those creative content development skills. And there mm -hmm. were even people in the, the university of their study I did who actually learned skills that they later applied to improving their career trajectories, which I thought was pretty interesting. I mean, well, you know the story of me and Laura. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it well, was yeah, that. Of course. That was what I was referring to. <laughs> well, give it, give it, let's give a backstory. Uh, one of our listeners, Just Think Tink. Hi, Laura. How are you, honey? Um, Just Think Tink had come and taken my class in Photoshop and uh, creating textures for 3D models in there.com. And she had come in and she has severe ADD. And God love you, Laura. You work so hard, honey. And we would work together. And she took my class twice. And she ended up, she was a, a, a vet at a uh, clinic and what happened is that she ended up <laughs> she ended up losing her job but then she went back and she got a job at a graphic design company because oh. she had taken all the time to take the classes in Photoshop and everything like that and she already had a very strong design background and so she ended up she wrote me a letter and she goes without you I wouldn't have been able to do this and I was like that is one for the emotional piggy bank just drop that penny in because that's gonna hold me and that was such a, a wonderful warming experience and now Laura is a part of the Uru community she writes she's on the forum she's just out there and and you much respect to you Laura you are a story of triumph my love anyway but you know I have a lot of students who, who had that same experience but, you know, and that is the power of being able to create inside an online world and to take part in a community that that will teach, that will share knowledge. Wouldn't you agree, Doc? Yeah, and actually, this actually goes back to something you guys were talking about earlier, actually, which is the sense that some players are disgruntled. So one, one of the, some Uru players, one of the things that I'm sort of keeping an eye out for is I really think that players who have been empowered to create their own content in other virtual worlds, and especially now that Bear.com is closed, um, want more creative input, and they want to create ages, and they want to, they've, they've already done it. You know, most of the people who immigrated to Bear in Second Life have made their own ages through their creating there. So I think that maybe some of that frustration you guys are picking up on the forums is really coming from that. They've been empowered to, to be creative and to create their own Uru-based content, and now they want to be able to do that in Uru. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree. I definitely agree with that, because once you have that power to create, you know, that passion does not get squashed easily. And, you know, and we were talking, we just did Dante's Inferno doc in the world lit. And we were talking about pride and wrath and all the seven deadly sins. And oh, it was so much fun, the seven levels of hell. Mm. And <laughs> it just struck me as so funny because, you know, we talked about how hope dies hardest and last. 
And with all the creative souls that are inside Uru right now, they are dying to get out and to and to contribute. And they are hoping with all their hearts to make the world better than when they found it. So, you know, it's one of those things. Hope dies hardest and last. And I think that's where a little bit of that bitterness is coming from, too, because they've hoped for so long. Well, I think there's a couple of factors there. Um, I I see things like I've seen comments on gaming related articles where people will talk about like where's my sequel to this game or where's my whatever to this game and at some point the games are like 10 years old to the point like you know any glimmer of hope there is going to be a sequel is long since gone the difference here is that like cyan has been promising us this ability for a very long time and uh you know they they kind of went from like you know one a week before they they released the new or alive that you know we're going to release her alive and then boom it was here and then Okay, we're gonna make some progress, and then boom, the 3DS Max plugin is here, and so you know it's they they kind of set up you know in a strange way a timetable that has us you know chomping at the bit. Where's the next bit? Where's the next bit? And that obviously that's unrealistic expectations, but that's kind of the path they put us on with this particular release. Well, I mean, Doc and I talked about this a long time ago, where when you make something really good, Doc, you will remember this, um, when you make something really good people always want more of it. And that is the the whole realm of the game designer because they, they, they see it and they go, oh, I love that. I want more. I want more. I want more. I want more. And they really get this hunger for the content and for what it does. And that's, we've got a starving community. <laughs> I think it actually goes both ways too because mm-hmm. um, in my book, I talk about the feedback loop, right? Um, there's a whole section of my book about uh, something I call productive play, which is essentially what we're talking about, which is when people's play activity encompasses creative output. And um, the virtual world provides a unique kind of feedback loop in that you make stuff, people appreciate your things, and what you find is that if people get positive feedback for the things they make, they want to make more stuff. (laughs) Um, I mean, it seems obvious, but in fact, that's precisely what happens. And so, you know, Sherry's, Sherry's experience is the perfect example where she made a couple of things, people really liked them, she made more stuff. Um, same thing with Majandi. People experiment, they discover that people like what they're making and they continue to try and improve. And so you have both the demand by the players who are used to having that, and then you also have the creators um, who have had that feedback loop and really get a lot of rewards out of being appreciated as designers. Mm-hmm. Oh, most definitely. I mean, when you see that your work hits hits the sweet spot, oh, you want to do that again because you want that rush again. That's the, oh, I did it right. They like it. Oh, it's you get that Sally Field. They like me. They really, really like me. You yeah. know, you do. You get the feeling. Yeah, that's, that's actually absolutely right. And the other thing I think that's really interesting, like if you look at some of the early, early um, Uru-inspired and Mist-inspired work that was done in Second Life, the best example being Numbakula. I don't know if you guys have ever been over there, but Numbakula is a completely original Mist-like level essentially in Second Life that was made by Uru and Mist Uru refugees and Mist players very early on. And what they did was they made completely original content in the style of Mist and Uru. And if you go to that island, if you're used to the um, sort of spatial and visual vocabulary of Mist games, you'll immediately recognize that you're in a Mist-inspired uh, environment. 
Um, so that was an early attempt that some players made at not just copying Wii U, not just replicating ages, but actually trying to make something entirely new in the style, essentially an entirely new age. And people having done that now, and, and I think it's, you know, for the mind of an Uru player, which is a, inherently a puzzle solver, right, creating an environment that's true to the canon of the missed games is a really important creative challenge. And, and people would argue at length um, about this when I was studying the Uru community. People that created Uru content in there.com actually broke into two camps. One was making it look a lot like Uru or very much like Uru. And another camp was making a hybrid aesthetic. So if you look at, say, Majandi and Talos's work, for instance, there was a hybrid aesthetic that was a little more cartoony and was designed to be Uru, but to fit into the cartoon aesthetic there. Whereas you had people like Greeny, for instance, who made much more photorealistic objects um, that were not as much cartoony, but more trying to reflect what the actual aesthetic of Uru was. So the the intellectual and creative challenge that that entails is something that the sort of the Uru player inherently embraces as a, an intellectual proposition. Yeah. And, and we're we're a pack of smart cookies. I'm sorry, <laughs> but we are we're a pack of smart cookies. And I, I always they trained us well. They have trained us well. You know, Uru was created to train the faithful, and it is like getting lost at the world's coolest Mensa convention. And, but you know, the other thing I wanted to jump in, Sherry, if I can. There's an amazing go, go ir- ironic, amazing irony to all of this, and that you know, when I first wrote in the book about it, I was kind of amazed because I thought, here's a game that's about a group of people's world ending. They emigrate to another place. That's what Uru is about, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and the journey from Gardening. Yes. The irony of that world then closing and those people who played that game having that same experience themselves. And so, in some way, I think that Uru actually trained players to have the refugee experience. Mm-hmm. I'll definitely go that. I will definitely go that because, I mean, you know what a canon junkie I am. I'm a canon junkie of the highest order. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Good to me, to see, you know, to see the change, you know, the journey of Anna going back to Cavern and then back out again after the fall. You know, she was a great example of that survival instinct, I think, that is inherent in every player in Uru. Because, you know, those of us who have read the books and have really took took time to immerse ourselves in the story of Uru, I mean, that is, you are absolutely right, Doc. I mean, we are trained to be survivors. And that's why I always use that Frank Herbertism that Uru was created to train the faithful, because we do not give up. We do not lose hope. We keep being helpful. I mean, and no matter what gets thrown at us, we survive it. And I mean, we are a community of survivors. And I mean, no matter how many times our world may rise and fall, it's still cavern blood, that cavern blood, it runs so deep that, I mean, I couldn't let go of my cavern teachings for all the tea in China. I mean, I let, I wrote, I've written three papers in my world lit class based on you know, Uru and talking about cavern values. And what was so funny to me 
And I think this is reflective in, you know, how David Wingrove kind of teamed up with Rand and Robin to write the books is that they are a lesson in the seven deadly sins. And I thought that was so neat going into Dante's Inferno and all this other stuff. And I've just seen reflections in all of world literature of all these neat little pieces, the Ramayana Valmiki. I mean, that is one of the best ones is that, you know, there's all these influences that are all combined inside our canon that that inspire people to reach a higher state and so i mean our survival instinct i think is only natural but that's me uh i think that miss the mist world and the uru world are really comparable in that regard to things like star trek and star wars where there's a world that's rich enough to almost you know it's really comparable to any of the great mythologies for instance um it has the same kind of robustness and then in addition, of course, the Mist games have the whole age writing component, which sort of then points us back again to the creativity elements that I think ultimately Ruvians with any kind of passion for the content eventually want to be able to write their own ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you know what, Doc? All I want to do is find a builder for my literacy age. I want to see them come up with the, with the, the, the spell stones. You know, where you trace the you trace the letter with your finger, it makes the sound. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I want to see somebody pull that one off. I would just pay real money <laughs> to see somebody. That would pull be that impressive. Off. You know, because my literacy age is just—I mean, it was a piece of fan fiction that everybody just went, "We need that," because it was all letters, numbers, learning how to talk. You know, just the little small things because we love to learn. Have you noticed that, Doc? That the Uru community <laughs> loves to learn. You know, that it's was because actually... there's so much to learn. Mm. Yeah. Well. Again, it goes back to the game, right? Because, like you said, I mean, the, the classic joke is that Mist was made for Mensa members, right? That it's really hard and intellectually challenging. Um, and even now, you know, there's uh, language, any language classes that were being taught in Bear.com, which are now moving over to Uru. Um, you know, people with the, the for instance, the Denny Dictionary, um, people kind of learning, uh, learning various skills, the university there. Um, of course, where people were learning creation skills as well as other things. I mean, there was archaeology and, and Native American studies as well. But there mm-hmm. is this passion for learning and this, um, I think, undaunted spirit that, you know, things that are difficult are not going to stop you, essentially. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, at, at this juncture where everybody's trying to get a little bit negative, we've got griefers and such and so forth. I think that that's, I mean, I think this is a great reminder to everyone to make sure that, hey, you know what, this is who we are. And, you know, you have to aspire to be greater because that's what the Misty Universe is about. But, you know, I mean, now, so there's that, your reminder community. And, and actually get back, back to work. Going back to the griefing issue, I think that one of the one of the biggest causes of griefing in my research is boredom, right? So probably part of why we're seeing some griefing behavior now is precisely what you were saying earlier about people have done the ages, they've kind of run out of things to do. And I think that this could lead to, we could really um, see a new flowering of more emergent behavior. And of course, the Dunny Olympics being a classic example of that. Sherry, where, you know, you guys invented a whole new series of sports, I think mm-hmm. that there are a lot more possibilities for those kinds of activities that don't require creation of original content, but I think right. we're going to see more things like the University of There in Uru, and we'll probably see 
you know, I remember playing hide and seek with you guys early on and until Uluru. <laughs> so I think there are a lot oh, more things, a lot more ways to play in Uluru than people have even really, really barely touched on at this point. So I'm hoping, you know, that the community, instead of, instead of annoying people, will, if you're bored, um, you know, create something interesting for people to do. Thank you, Doc. That's what I've been saying all along. But yeah, thanks for that big dose of guilt. Uh, yeah, I've got to get into cavern and start cooking on my activities. Get back to work. The, those are, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> there were some great things up. actually during the. You know, remember there was the tapestry, and you had the ladies' garden club, and you guys had. I mean, maybe it's time for us to uh, do another Dunny Games. Yeah, I, I need to get on the stick with that. Hey, you Dunny Games people. Post in the TCT forums. I need to hear from you. <laughs> but anyway, um, but Doc, I mean, you are so amazing. I mean, ugh, I can't even thank you enough for, for, for coming, coming on with us. But we need to go on to our next bullet point, which is Portal 2. The boys in oh Portal. Boy. We, have, we have this young man. His name is Dalkin. And Dalkin oh, likes to sing along. Him. He likes to sing along with the Portal lady. And he scares <laughs> us a lot. But John, John, hook us up with Portal 2. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, Dalkin actually is interesting because his little fun thing was he was trying to do the, the recipe. Oh goodness! You know, oh, one good of, luck getting all the ingredients. Well, one of, no, <laughs> the not, cake not, isn't not a lie. Not, it's actually not, there. It's not really. You don't want it. Not really to cook the recipe. More so that he would keep reading it to us. Oh. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't know. One of the balls that you you put into the the there's, hole at the end is is telling us the cake sphere and then anger. One of them gives you the recipe. Insane ability to mm-hmm. just pour just about anything, and I can't even do it. It's like a whole five minutes worth of. Of monologue, just reciting this recipe, you can't do it. So anyway, well, but... Portal Two, I I kept thinking, you, you kind of get a sense for Valve that you know they have a you know it's done when it's done kind of deal. You know, we'll we'll get that uh, that third episode of Half Life Two out someday when we're done with it. I've been waiting for that since before the TF Two ep- uh, updates started coming out. Yeah. Um. So the, the fact that Portal Two is already coming out seems like kind of a you know splash of cold water in your face. Well, do you guys know the history of Portal? It's actually pretty interesting. It is. It, it is fairly interesting. And I do like some of the details that have come out that are possible details from Portal 2. I, I know I know that uh, Portal was born somewhere of a developer that they absorbed, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, it was a group of students from DigiPen University in <laughs> Redmond, Washington, and it was their senior project, and it was called Narbacular Drop. Uh, the premise was very similar to Portal, but... Uh, Pretty much the only difference with the portals themselves was that you could shoot portals through other portals. But apart from that, it was an extremely similar game, and uh, Valve just kind of absorbed them when they saw this project and said, we can use this. It was a Half-Life mod, though. I think that's the interesting part, is yeah, that they I think were already it, it using the engine. Yeah, I think old source engine, yeah. Yep. I actually, in my other, one of my other jobs is uh, I uh, co- co-direct an independent game festival, and we always keep an eye on these independent... Uh, independent games and especially student games. There's a number of student games that, and student teams that are starting to go into the mainstream gaming industry and win awards and whatnot. Portal, I think, won an award last year at the Game Developers Conference. Um, it also is a, is a team that the two lead designers on that team are both women, which is kind of unusual. Wow. Saying Portal won an award is like saying the water is wet. <laughs> of course it won an award. <laughs> it's but I mean, I'm, I mean, for something that started as a student game designed by two girls, it, 
it's kind of amazing how quickly it, it, it ascended. Is. It is. You never know what's going to be big. And when people were buying the orange box just to play Portal, which is, you know, an hour and a half long game, you know, in the midst of all this other content. Yeah. Okay. I think it might be time for Moak Thought. What do you think, John? Yep. Over to you, Moak. Hello again. This is Moak for The Cavern Today. Since we set up our own TCT neighborhood in the cavern, I've been spending more time than usual getting to know it. Hanging around a hood with strangers is one thing, but having a special place where you can meet your friends is somehow different. Sort of like home, really. So that's why I was sitting in the light garden one day last week just soaking up the atmosphere and listening to the water, that sort of thing. In my last report, you may recall that I mentioned I'd gotten a new key from Greason, as usual, and how great it was to have one again. Well, it turns out that key was kind of a mixed blessing because this one simply didn't fit very well. So while I was there in the garden, I took it off to see if I could do anything with the buckle to make it fit more comfortably. And, of course, I fumbled and dropped it, and it bounced off my foot and into the water. Well, I wasn't concerned. I knew from previous experience that the keys are waterproof. So I took off my shoes, rolled up my pants legs, and stepped into the water. As you know, the water isn't all that deep in the light garden. All the same, it's not easy to see to the bottom, so I found myself feeling around trying to locate my key. And to my great surprise, I found something else entirely. I found a key, all right, but a key of the K-E-Y kind. It was of a rather unusual design. The handle, as well as the part that would fit in a lock, were five-sided. And to my amazement, I realized that I'd found a Denis artifact and it didn't take me long to begin wondering if it would actually fit a lock there in our neighborhood. I stuck it in my pocket and found my other key of the K-I kind, strapped it back on my hand, and left the garden. Now I realize I'm certainly not alone when it comes to wondering about all the locked doors in the hoods and the city. It was my curiosity about the Denis culture and people that were my main attraction to Uru in the first place, and many's the time I've tried a door someplace only to find it securely locked. I suppose the DRC have had the same issues, as the doors have remained locked since the first day we were allowed to enter the cavern. So you can imagine the anticipation I felt, now that I had what was evidently a real Denis key. Perhaps I would finally be able to see what lay behind those doors and hazy windows. Think about it. Dwelling places, still lit by eternal fire marbles, but without the sound of footsteps for hundreds of years. What would I find? Would I need to report my discovery to the DRC? For that matter, do they still care? Well, whatever the case, my visit to the hood had suddenly taken on a new urgency. I tried the key in the first door I came across, and while it fit, I was unable to turn it. I wasn't really surprised, as there are plenty of doors in the hood. So I continued, but each time, while the key appeared to fit all the locks, it didn't seem to actually unlock anything. At the last door, when the key again failed to turn, I got a bit frustrated and, for some reason, shoved it into the lock even harder. Imagine my surprise when there was a muffled click from inside the door's ancient mechanism. Leave it to the Denis to be different. So the key didn't work by turning. All you had to do was to push it to disengage the lock. Well, as bad as I wanted to enter the room, curiosity got the better of me and I backtracked to some of the other doors to see if the push-the-key trick would work with them as well. Unfortunately, it didn't, but at least I'd apparently unlocked one door, and it was time to explore. I returned to the door to find it still unlocked, and gently pushed it open. 
dry hinges grated in protest, but the door swung easily enough, plowing an arc of dust as it moved across the floor. As my eyes adjusted to the dim light provided by the few remaining fire marbles and the dirty windows, I was gradually able to make out the features of the initial room. Now, we've all been to the cleft and have seen Anna's handiwork there. Each room's furnishings in the cleft were carved out of the living rock as needed. Well, in this Denis apartment, for so it evidently was, the same pattern was evident, but the room and its furnishings seemed somehow older to the point of being ancient and there was a dignity to their design and function that seemed to echo the advanced society of the Denis race. I switched on my key light and followed its beam around the room. This had been a private home from the looks of it. There were still personal effects lying about, as if the owners had simply dropped everything and fled, and from what we understand of the plague unleashed by Viovis and Aguirres, my guess is that this is exactly what happened. The family who lived here appeared to have frantically gathered a few significant articles and disappeared. Dryers were hanging open, doors were ajar, and the door of a small wall safe was open slightly as well, its strange Denis lock, almost a puzzle of some sort, deciphered for one last time before the safe was rifled of its contents and abandoned. I made my way slowly to the kitchen. I knew the place was empty, but I still couldn't fail to sense a presence there. Perhaps I felt spirits of the Denis family who had once occupied these rooms, or a borrow, maybe? Who knows, but I was on pins and needles the whole time. It was a very eerie experience. I did indeed find the kitchen. There were the remains of uneaten meals on the elegant tabletop, covered by a thick layer of dust. Beautiful goblets contained only a heavily concentrated layer of dried wine at the bottom, and there was a book lying open that, when dusted off, proved to be a collection of daily prayers to the maker. The wash basin was equipped with running water, and I saw from the Denis writing on the valves that they had once dispensed hot and cold water. I tentatively turned a valve and watched as a sudden gush of filthy water slowly cleared until it flowed pure and sweet. And on a whim, I followed my key light down a nearby hallway and found what we all knew must surely exist, a restroom. I didn't take the time to investigate it, but suffice it to say that if word were to get out, it would be a very popular place indeed. Then I found sleeping quarters. The beds, set back into wall niches, were neatly made, and I was struck by the appearance of one of them. It was a much smaller bed than the others, and my suspicion that it must have been a child's bed were confirmed when I looked at it a bit more closely. At the foot of the pillow were three small stuffed animals, not surprisingly, the creatures weren't bears, or any recognizable life form for that matter. They were quadrupeds, but very strangely proportioned, and I assumed that they must be patterned on some native life forms from the family's personal age, made by a mother to remind her son or daughter of the wonders of their own age while they were at home in the cavern. And yes, it brought home to me the savagery of the acts perpetrated by Viovas. Mothers and children were endangered, and many perhaps had died in the pestilence that he brought about. But enough on that. I made my way to another room that was unmistakably the family library. A great number of books were shelved in splendid bookcases, and I recognized some of the titles as biographies of kings and guildmasters. There was a writing desk, too, and examining the artifacts there convinced me that I'd actually come across a few of the tools involved in the art, there were three blank books, very meticulously made, obviously to a time-honored formula. 
The bindings were elegant, with a blank area on the spine and cover where something, a new age title perhaps, could be added by the writer. I held one of the books in my hands and tried to comprehend the significance of the object. In these books lay the greatness of the Denis. The greatness now vanished with the exception of treasures such as these. There was another book also. This one lay open on the desk, with an elaborate pen, long, dry, dropped alongside. The writing in the book, an elegant Denis script, appeared to stop directly in the middle of a page. I flipped to the front page of the book and found a dark linking panel. Apparently the writing had ceased before the age could be completed. Oh, to know what wonders would have been revealed had that writing been finished. Nobody would ever know the age that was being described in the pages of that book. And that's when I swung my light about and saw the pedestal standing in a niche in the corner of the room. Having read about the customs of the Denis, I had no doubt that I'd found the treasured link to the family's own private age. The head of this family must, then, have been a member of the Guild of Writers, and had personally penned this age for the exclusive use of his family. Yes, a closer look revealed that this was indeed a linking book. I couldn't make out the text on the cover, but it appeared to be a family name, followed by the Denis term for Haven. Sadly, though, a glance at the first page revealed that the linking panel showed only the dark swirling of a dead link. Several possibilities entered my mind, but I feel strongly that this family, when they affected their panicked link to their personal age, must have taken that age's descriptive book with them, and then perhaps destroyed it upon their arrival, thus eliminating the possibility of any further links to their world. I prefer to think that's what happened, actually. I dread the thought that their age itself was destroyed, and I pray that they, or perhaps their descendants, may still be enjoying its wonders. And who knows, maybe even as I stood looking at their age book, they were even then remembering the great cavern they'd once called home, and wondering what had become of it. If I could, I'd tell them that the cavern, their old home, was very much alive, that a new generation of the once-dreaded surface-dwellers had been called to its depths, and were daily wondering at its greatness and learning more and more about the vanished race that had once dwelt there. I would tell them that we had also come to love their great cavern, and were making a home there. Your home. My home. Our home. For the Cavern Today, this is Moog, signing off. Thanks, Moog, for that great thought. But... I think I'm starting to hear some clatter out in the hood. Oh, guys, we better break this up. You never know what's going on out there. Yeah. The Dawkins loose. Um, oh, so, uh, so let's wrap this up for the uh, for, TC- for TCT talk. This has been Holly. Hey, bye. Sorry. Janathus. See you later. Jeff Wise. Uh, yeah, later, guys. Mr. Wing. I no wait. Bye. <laughs> me sherry bye guys see you next month and of course our special guest and thank you so much doc for coming and being with us this has meant so much to me i just love you so much so tell everybody bye doc thank you so much for having me goodbye and uh we'll see you guys again next month and oh what is that noise that doing 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 do you Stop guys hear him no good tomfoolery i say Oh my word! Who gave Dalkin a pogo stick? Hmm, such a mischievous act can only be the work of... Genapis. Well, you have to admit it keeps him occupied. Occupied? Yes... 
but it also makes him about ten times more obnoxious. I'll bet you thought I couldn't stop bouncing, but I did. <laughs> Something tells me no good will come of this. Hey guys. Ooh, I almost forgot. Everyone, this is Moose, new staff member. Haze him properly, make me proud. Hi, Hi, Hi Moose. Jeez, Janathus, you could at least be sneaky. The pranks work less when it's us beforehand. Hey, new person over here, too. Oh yeah, Wing's new, too. Hi, Hi. Wing. Wing. Okay, we are corny, but yet we're such a well-coordinated bunch. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. It's nice to meet you all, but what I was going to say was... I warned you, maybe that will teach you to stay out of here. Yeah, Jeff has set up cones, tripwire, and a linking book in the auditorium to safeguard his keyboard. Jeff, could you come down here for a minute? He'll be in a minute. Safely navigating the auditorium looks like it's slow going. Hey, I left Eddie in there. Uh, does that mean we can't have Eddie back? I think he kicked Eddie out. Oh, rats. Took me forever to kick him up there in the first place. Yes? You rang? Now, Jeff, I thought we agreed that the auditorium was not an exclusive space and that we would share it. No, I think you agreed to put your speakers at my disposal and that you would keep your HD equipment out of my way. Jeff, darling, we all love you, but we can't work with two dictators. We spend enough time trying to keep Janathus reeled in. How about you just take the high road no, and, you uh... don't understand. Tolkien is tireless. I keep waking up to the abominable heart and soul. It's in my nightmares. He must be defeated. I'm back. I bet you thought you were getting rid of me. But you didn't. Dawkin, honey, we need to talk. Oh, my. Oh, oh. He brought a Keanu lint from chemo into the hood. You, indeed. Dawkin, we talked about this. We give you your daily chocolate orange and you behave. Wait a minute. If I don't behave, I get candy? No, you don't get candy. Be quiet. Oh, and what are you going to do about it? Sometimes I wonder if maybe it wasn't such a bad idea to bring the video game system down here. It's a rare time when we're still in the hood after a cast is completed. I guess we just all have to blow off some steam. I, for one, am going to step out before... Ow! I'm unarmed. That means you can't shoot me. Just another casualty of war, Tom. Let me reload and show you what I can and can't do. Why, you little... Tony Hope! Well... If you can't beat him, join him. Okay, before I get beamed by one of these random nerf darts raining everywhere, I'm linking out. Hey, hey, Janathus, hey, don't you even think it. Hey, this, I'm out of here. Is there any sanity left in the cavern today? <laughs> well, let me check. Ow! You got me in the nose with that nerf ball. Nope, I don't think so. Time for darts and machine gun for. Whoa! I almost got that time. Take that Jedi! Look out! Sorry! No! 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 No